Holy Spirit, we invite you to this room right now. We ask that you would, you would reveal to us our motives, our thoughts, the things we lie hidden um, below the surface. God, what we choose is what we become. And sometimes we don't think deeply enough about how we decide things. And Lord, the unfortunate reality is that when we decide things, you are often the last thing we think about. In the busyness of our lives, in the frantic nature of the schedules that we live, we seldom think of you. And yet, we cry to the heavens, where is God? How come I can't feel God? Why, why do I not know God? And God declares back to us, because you've moved me out of your life. I pray, Lord, as we look at the words of Jesus this morning, of the cost of discipleship, I pray, Lord, that we would realize that you've not asked us to be a Christian as a label, but instead you've called us to be a disciple. And I pray that each one of us would be disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome. If you are visiting with UCC for the first time, we want to say welcome to you. We want to say thank you for joining us. One of the things you need to understand about UCC, we don't take ourselves too seriously. Um, and that's on purpose. Why? Because we think that God's a God of fun, but we're not really about the performance. or more about community and, and the intimacy about that. This morning, we're starting a new series uh, called Scrambled. And uh, we're going to take a look at your life. And as boring or as exciting as you think that may be, we want to take a look at really what makes up the, the, the building blocks of your life. Uh, and this morning we're looking at this idea of our decisions defining us. But before we do that, we need to look at another very theological book. Uh, you know this book. It's called Alice in Wonderland. And in Alice in Wonderland, there's this really in interesting moment where she comes to a fork in the road, and she's looking, and she's trying to make a decision. And remember, she has the conversation with the uh, Cheshire cat. Uh, young Alice comes to the fork in the road and asks the Cheshire cat which direction she should take. That depends a good deal on what you, where you want to go, said the cat. Her response, I don't much care where, said Alice. Then it doesn't matter which way you walk, said the cat. And when I think about this little moment in time, this little moment in the story, is that that's our lives. We come to fork, uh, forks in our road uh, of our lives, and we say to ourselves, I don't really care where we go. I don't really care what, what happens. I just want to keep moving forward. And the problem with that is that what we do is we'll, take it, we'll make a choice, we'll make a decision, and we end up going down paths that we don't want to be. Like, oftentimes we can look at our lives and, and say to ourselves, how did I end up here? Like, how did I end up here? How did I, how did I end up at this place in my life that's full of pain or full of, of uncertainty? Like, how did I end up at this moment in time? And what we do is we look back, we look back at the decisions we made, and we're going, oh. I um, had this conversation. Um, I was a, a youth pastor for many years, and uh, one of the things we used to do is we used to have these banquets at Christmas time. And of course, the banquets are where everyone gets dressed up. It's all pageantry. It's fun, right? But of course, at the banquets, you know, couples show up. Well, there's one time uh, this, this couple show up, this guy and a girl. And I'm looking at them. I'm like, wow, I didn't realize that they were dating or, or a thing, as it were. You know, there was nothing on Facebook. So how could it possibly have happened? And um, they came in. And so the guy goes over and, and is getting some punch or whatever. So I said to the girl, oh, I said, oh, I didn't realize that you guys were dating. She's like, we're not. I said, oh, I, I didn't realize you were interested or, you know, whatever those hip terms you kids are using, you know, doing coffee or whatever. Anyways, and she said, we're not. I said, well, how did you end up here? And she said, well, he asked. I said, it's that easy? I didn't realize it was all I had to ask. And she's like, I don't even like him. 
And I'm like, okay, I, you know, well, good for him for asking and bad for you for saying yes. I don't know. Either way, this is kind of how our lives are. We make decisions, we decide things, and we think to ourselves afterwards, it's like, why did I do that? How did I end up here? Well, this morning, as we look at this idea, Jesus has something to speak to it. But before we get to that part, what I want to do is I want to kind of peel back the layers of your brain, and I want to show you something about how you make decisions which you may not have heard of. Um, the idea behind the series is this. Our lives are scrambled, mixed up, messed up, stressed, strained, and without focus. We are inundated with voices that plead for our attention and remind us of what we haven't accomplished yet. In the midst of all this, we ask, where is God? You wake up in the morning and there's a to-do list. It doesn't matter if you're in school. It doesn't matter if you're working. It doesn't matter if you're in transition. It doesn't matter. You wake up in the morning and there's this impending doom of things that have to get done. And at the end of the night, at the end of the evening, when you're about to put your head on the pillow, you're like, oh, I didn't do that, or oh, I didn't do that, or I didn't text that person back, or, you know, it's just, there's things that have to get done. Our lives are very frenetic. We are always kind of scrambling about trying to make sense of it. And I think part of the reasons why we're in that state is because we're not really asking ourselves some different questions, some interesting questions. How you make decisions is very important. Um, Decision-making is such a seamless brain process that we're usually unaware of it until our choices result in unexpected consequences. Then we may look back and wonder, why did I choose that option? Your schedule is not your itinerary for the week. It's your values statement of your life. If I would say to you, like, what, if, I, if I didn't know you, I didn't have a conversation with you, but I saw your schedule for the week, I would know what's important to you. Because that shows way more than anything else your value system. And it's interesting that we think so little of our schedules because there's things that we have to do. You have to go to school. You have to go to work. You have to do these assignments. These are things you have to do. But in the midst of that, what we have to do, there's the things that we want to do. I'm done work. Who's, who, who wants to hang out? I want to go for coffee. It's three in the morning. It sounds like a good time to play Risk. Why not? Let's, let, these are things that we want to do. That was just me back in school. So I don't know. That's just more of a confession time for me, right? But then we say to ourselves, how do we make decisions? How do we say to ourselves, this is the best way to go? Like, <laughs> I probably should tell you this story. Uh, when I was in third year, I, around 5 o'clock, I was in Bible college, and I remember thinking it would be really great to have a Toronto hot dog. I just was craving, you know, those vendors of hot dogs, and they have all these toppings, right? It's like, it's so good, right? But what I didn't tell you to you is that I had an exam the next morning, right? And the school I went to was in Peterborough. So to get from Peterborough to Toronto, it was about an hour and a half, you know, two hours, depending on traffic. This is at 5 o'clock at night. And I thought to myself, this would be a great idea. One thing you have to understand about me is I never do anything alone. I'm an extrovert. So I get like about 20 other people. We got five cars, and we all drive to Toronto. All of us have exams the next day, just to be clear, right? So we get down there. We, we get to Toronto around 8 o'clock. And of course, you're in Toronto. You're young and all. It's like, yeah, this is fun, right? So we, have, we had a hot dog or two or three hot dogs. We walked around. And we decided, okay, you know what? We should probably head back. But of course, someone's car wouldn't stop. And so we're stuck there, and no one knows how the car works, and uh, you turn the keys, it'll turn on, but it wasn't. And so we were stuck there till one o'clock in the morning. So we drive back to school, and I think we arrived back in Peterborough around you know, three o'clock thereabouts, and we had an exam at, at like 8 a.m. in the morning. And um, I passed the exam, just to be clear in case you're wondering, but it was not a great decision on my part. But the thing is, though, is that it was like, hey, it'd be fun. This seems like a good idea. 
not realizing the consequences of what those, that decision-making was. Well, there's a book I read a few years ago that really helped me to understand how I make decisions. The book is called Thinking Fast and Slow. It's written by a guy named Daniel Kahneman. He won a Nobel Prize for his work in this area. Professor Kahneman and his late colleague, Amos Tversky, who worked at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and Stanford University, realized that we actually have two systems of thinking. There's a deliberate, logical part of your mind that is capable of analyzing a problem and coming up with a rational answer. So what they say is this, that your brain, the way you make decisions are two ways, right? This part of your mind that you are aware of, it's expert at solving problems, but it's slow, requires a great deal of energy, and is extremely lazy. Even the act of walking is enough to occupy most of your attentive mind. So what he's trying to say is that our slow mind, the mind that makes good decisions, is exhausting. So here's what's interesting. I was in the uh, lobby this morning, and I'm watching people come in. And you can tell who's been here before. They have that, they have that, you know, they know UCC, they know how we set things up. But for you visitors, this is your first time. You still have that new visitor smell about you, so we know you, right? Uh, you don't, but maybe. But you walk in, and you walk in the door, and you're like, okay, what am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? Why? Because you're slow thinking. It's like, okay, what, what's happening here? Do I get popcorn? You know, what's going on? Like, how do, I, how do I navigate this church that meets in the theater, right? So that's your slow brain. Your slow brain is actually the part of your brain that makes good decisions. Because you know what it does? It does consequences. If I do this, then this, 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 this will happen. If I do this, then this, this, this won't happen, right? And that's actually wise. Why? Because a decision has consequences. And only your slow brain will think down further enough to make that decision properly. Now, you're all thinking to yourself, well, that's great. Of course it is. But the problem is, that's not the brain that makes most of your decisions. The brain that makes most of your decisions is your fast brain. And it says this, but then there's another system in your mind that is intuitive, fast, and automatic. This fast way of thinking is incredibly powerful, but totally hidden. It is so powerful, it's actually responsible for most of the things that you say, do, think, and believe. Your fast brain is a brain that makes decisions, and rightfully so, right? Like, if you go out to the day, you know, you don't stand and, and, and say to someone, hey, give me five minutes, I'll give you an answer. How are you doing today? Well, ten minutes, I'll let you know, Right? You're not supposed to stand in front of your closet and agonize over what you wear, but that's maybe your slow brain taking into account, but that's a whole different story, right? Your fast brain is meant to make life easier. It's meant to make decisions that move things along. Am I hungry? Am I not? What do I want to eat, right? Like, you know, you may take a little bit longer when you open your cupboard. Uh, you're like, there's nothing there, so I guess I'm not going to eat, or, you know, where do I want to go on res or whatever, right? Your fast brain makes the fast decisions, but here's the problem. This is what he discovered. Most of the time, our fast, intuitive mind is in control, efficiently taking charge of all the thousands of decisions we make each day. The problem comes when we allow our fast, intuitive system to make decisions that we really should pass over to our slow, logical system. This is where the mistakes creep in. See, that girl I was talking to you about who went to the banquet with a guy. The guy comes up to her and says, do you want to go to the banquet? She says, yes. That's your fast brain. Instead, she's like, Mm, do I want to hurt him? Do I want to hurt him? You know, uh, no, I don't. I'd, I'd prefer not to. Right? Slow versus fast thinking. Now, here's here's what's really interesting. They intonate this in the book. They don't really talk about it because it's not a faith-based book. But this is what he says. And guess where the realm of faith and spiritual development fall? Not in your fast brain, but your slow brain. 
Here's what's very interesting. This idea of spiritual development, this idea of growing in your faith, however you want to understand that, that's your slow brain, not your fast brain. Because your fast brain actually is, is, is looking more about pleasure, right? It's about behavior. Now, there's a study done a couple years ago in Chicago. The Chicago public system was seeing a lot of uh, young males who were at risk, getting in, violent, uh, getting in violence, dropping out of school. And so the study was put together saying, okay, how do we do this? Now, what you may not know is that Chicago actually has a high crime rate and violence rate amongst people in public school. As a matter of fact, they said that New York, who you'd think would have more, had about 20,000 youth in gangs. Chicago had about 100,000. Like the, 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 the problem was magnified. And so what they did is they put together these economists, sociologists, social workers. They came all together and said, okay, who's doing some good work out there that's actually making a difference in crime, in keeping kids in school? How do we do this? They came across this program. Here's what's interesting. The program was all about uh, helping the youth make better decisions. And so the first day of the program, this is what they would do. They have a, a room full of young males. Right? And these are all at-risk males. These are males who have been uh, recommended to them by the guidance counselor, males who have been um, in, in violence or, or whatnot. And this is what they would say. Okay, I want you guys to pair up. Stand up and pair up. So find someone else. And they would do that. And they would say, okay, now what I want you to do is make one person A, one person B. No problem. And then this is where it gets fun. They said, okay, person A, I want you to make a fist. person would do that. And they'd say, okay, you know, person B... Your job is to make them open that fist. And the only rule is, there are no rules. Go. And then 30 seconds. And of course, pandemonium breaks out of the room. Guys are beating up on each other, headlocks, trying to give a wedgie, whatever. However they could get the person to open the fist, they were trying to do so. And after 30 seconds, they said, okay, stop. Now flip it. Person A, you make the fist. Person, uh, sorry, person B, you make the fist. Person A, you now have to open the fist. And of course, 30 seconds, bedlam, right? And guys are punching each other. And then after the 30 seconds, they have the guys come sit in a circle. And they're like panting. They're all like, you know, they had the physical exercise. And then the person who's, who's facilitating the conversation says this. What was your method of getting the person to open the fist? Guys like, I headlock, I punched him, you know. I was hitting him on the head with a book, you know. And then so the facilitator said this. Why didn't any of you ask the person to open their fist? Because these young men are growing up in tough neighborhoods. And their first reaction is violence. Their first reaction is, I'm not going to be a punk. I'm not going to have anybody disrespect me. And, and that's how they react. And so what they were trying to do in this moment is trying to say to them, before you make this decision, before you, before you fall into this unconscious automatic behavior... Can you make a decision? Now, for those of you in therapy or psychology, you'll recognize this as CBT, cognitive-based therapy, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, sorry. And cognitive behavioral therapy is great to help people stop smoking or breaking habits, but no one ever applied this onto social work. Now, what was amazing is that once these young men were taught that they don't have to behave as they've been taught, but they can make a decision their behavior began to change, and they found a 30 to 40% decrease in violence dropping out. Why? Because they were told they could act differently. The simple way of saying, how do you make a decision, can actually transform your life. And that's what they found with these young men. So that's why this book, uh, Thinking Fast and, Fast and Slow, was so amazing for me, is because I realized that sometimes I make decisions not based upon what I should do, but based upon it seems fun at the time. It's a new experience. Whatever it is, 
that's my fast break. But that's not the place where God exists. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 14. We're going to look at how Jesus talks about this and, uh, and how he helps us to understand what it, what it means to follow him. I'm going to read this to you, uh, and you can follow along or, or get on your electronic device. Chapter, uh, verse 25 says this. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost of it if there was enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you may complete only the foundation before running out of money. And then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's a person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far off. So you cannot be my disciple without giving up everything you own. You ever wonder why the Jesus movement didn't really take off that quickly? Because he says stuff like this. Because he says to people, listen, being a Christian isn't ticking off a box. Here's a survey. What are you? Well, I'm not any of these things. I must be this. Click. And there I am. I'm a Christian now, right? Jesus actually had a different way of looking at it. Now, I want to kind of walk through this verse and and unpack it a little bit. Um, Whoops. Sorry. Let me go back there. Uh, Verses 25 to 27. Now, think of this, okay? Imagine Jesus' life for a second. From the minute he opens his eyes to the time he goes to bed at night, there's a crowd around him. Okay? There, there are people literally around him. You think dorm life is bad? Okay? Imagine people always looking to either ask you a question, wanting you to heal somebody, trying to trip you up, trying to test you. Right? Like there's always people always asking for Jesus, uh, something from him. Right? Like he'd step out the door and there'd be a crowd of people like, Hi. Can you heal my son? My, uh, this person's been uh, demon-possessed since they've been born. And this group of people, they're trying to trip you up with your theology and your biblical knowledge. Right? That was Jesus' life. So when the writer says large crowds, this is Jesus' life. Like, nobody was busier than Jesus. From, uh, no matter how busy you think you are, I'm pretty sure you don't have a crowd of people following you wherever you go. Right? But that was Jesus' reality. Now, look what he says here. Now, this is very interesting. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother. Stop there for a second. I thought Jesus was, was cuddly. I thought he was nice. I thought he was all about love. Why is he now telling us to hate people we're supposed to love? What's going on here? Now, this is a moment in time. In scriptures, you will sometimes come across something. And you're like, mm, hate? Jesus, didn't you tell us to honor our fathers and our mothers? Why would you now tell us to hate them? Right? Some of you are like, I already hate my sibling. I hate my brother and sister. So this is easy. I'm, I, I'm, I'm way more like Jesus than I thought I was. So, uh, you know, there you go, right? Jesus used the word hate for a reason. Because in the Bible, the word hate is actually different than you understand it. And let me explain it to you by kind of going back in the Old Testament here. In Genesis chapter 29, verse 31, this is great scripture that kind of gives us the context of this word hate. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, and in, in the KJV, the ESV, it actually says hated, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Now, you remember the story, right? Jacob, right? He's got multiple wives. Bad idea right there and then, right? But he loves uh, Leah less than he loves Rachel. 
right? The Bible says it's hated. Now, what that means is this. To have other gods is to love them above God. To have other gods is to hate God. See, here's what we don't understand, is that God will not share the spot that he is supposed to have in your life with anything, with anything or with anyone. And that's why the Bible uses the word hate, because it says, unless you love less these things in your life than you do God, then you actually hate God. Jesus says that the love for God must be higher than all else, or else the persons cannot consider themselves a disciple. See, this is why Jesus never wrote uh, greeting cards, okay? Because a greeting card is like, hey, mom, I hate you. You know, that's not a great greeting card. That's why Jesus never got into Hallmark business, right? Because the word hate is not about hating as in like we, we anger and all that, but it's about priority. What Jesus is trying to say is, listen, the place that I have in your life must be preeminent to everything else. That's why Jesus says mother, father, husband, wife, brother, sister, all the important relationships in your life, right, they are meant to be less than Jesus. And that's what he's trying to tell us in this, in this moment in time. But then he goes on. He talks about this idea of counting the cost. And he uses this image of two things, right? The tower and war, right? Now, what's interesting here is that there's two tensions that are happening here. There's two tensions. Our faith is something that's being built, but also something attacked. Now, when you look in the Bible, there's a reason why Jesus uses analogies of the farm, right? Why? Because it's something growing. How do you know if something in the farm is, is good? It, re- it reproduces, it bears fruit, right? That's what Jesus says. Like a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears no fruit. That's how you tell, right? So the analogy of something being built is actually part and parcel of how the Bible is trying to unpack what it means to be a Christ follower. And so for Jesus, it says this. You want to build a tower, right? You want to build it, but it's going to take time. You got to make sure you have all the materials in place. It's going to cost you something. Many of you, I'm going to make an assumption here, you, you came to Christ younger. Camp, retreat, sometime, at some point in time, you made the decision, yes, Jesus, yes. But in that moment in time, it might have been your fast brain thinking and not your slow brain, because your slow brain going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do you understand the decision you're making? Because the decision you're making says this, that if you make this decision, then you will have to live your life differently than you're living now. That there is a cost to following Jesus. Sometimes in church or, or in, in, in places, we, we make decisions with our fast brain. Yes, this is a good idea. Yes, I, I, I like Jesus. I, I, I like him. He's good. Okay, I'm going to follow him. But then our slow brain kicks in and says, mm, do you understand what that means now? That means you have to live your life differently. That means something has to grow inside of you. The spirit of God is going to, is going to change and transform you. Right? But, but look, what even Jesus says this. The person began to build and wasn't able to finish, right? But the tower. How many people today have said yes to Jesus at some point in their life, but have not grown since then? Not developed, not, 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 not pursued God. I love talking to Christ followers who have been Christ followers for like 10, 20, 30, 50, 60 years. You know why? Because those individuals say things like this. They don't tell you about every victory, victory after victory. Yes, when I became a Christ follower, my bank account increased, and I, and, you know, I, I had the best car, the house. No, no, they say things like this. In that minute of that moment where that person died or I lost my job or in that moment of pain, God was with me. And his love and his presence sustained me. And you're like, how is that possible? 
In, in, in times of, 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 of trial, and times of, of heartache, how is it possible? And the big smile cracks their face because God has not left them, right? Because what they're saying to you is that even though I made this decision to follow Jesus when I was a teenager or a young adult or 20 or whatever, I never stopped growing. I never pursued, I never stopped pursuing God. Look what Jesus says in verse 33. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. That's it. That's it right there, right? Everything that you pursue in life, every, every pleasure, every, every passion, these are all good and there's nothing wrong with it. Of course, you want to have a good job, a job you may like or love. You want to have a relationship. You want to have, be in a relationship with friends and, and, and a romantic relationship. These are all good things, but they are things that are secondary to God. Because Jesus says, unless you love me more than you love them, I will get bumped out of your schedule. Remember I said to you at the very beginning, you show me your schedule, I'll show you your relationship with God? Why? Because God's the person that always gets bumped. When you wake up in the morning, your to-do list, it's not about God. It's not. I, I have to be at school. I have to do this. I have to have this presentation for work. I have to have this done. I have to have network with this person. I send that email off, right? And do you know what? Why are we then surprised in that business of life that we don't feel God's presence? It's kind of a duh moment, isn't it? It's like, of course I don't feel God. I haven't thought about him. I haven't set time aside for him. I haven't read my Bible. I haven't prayed. I haven't done anything. Why are we surprised? We should not be surprised. Why? Because God has become second, third, fourth, fifth down the list. And what we think is God's okay with that. God understands. I'm busy. God understands. I, you know, I've got all these requests. I'm so popular and people want to have coffee with me and, and this is all happening, right? And God's like, you got to understand something. I'm not okay with it because you've stopped growing. That building that we wanted to create in you, that you've stopped it. You've got the foundation, but that's it. That's it. Here's what I need you to understand. What do you say yes to that takes you away from God? I, I say this to my uh, young adult group beforehand. I'll say it to you. Every yes is a no to something else. Every time you say yes to something, you are automatically saying no to something else. Do you know Why? Because you can't create time. You live in a finite amount of time. It doesn't matter how much you stay up or, or, or whatnot, like whether it's 12 hours, 15 hours, depending, you still have a finite amount of time. And every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. Why is it we always say yes to things that take us away from God? Why is it we always say yes to things that move us away from what God wants for us? The reason is, it's boring, it's not fun, it's not exciting. Why? Our fast brain has taken over. Not our slow brain. Our slow brain says, listen, there is something you were created for, something more that God wants for you. Um, when we think about discipleship, I, I like this definition. Discipleship is not a matter of how much we have to offer, but renouncing all we think we have. So many people come to me and say, you know, I, I love Jesus, but I don't know the Bible that well, and I sin a lot, and I fall, and I fail, and I, I struggle to even make it to church and get up in the morning, you know, and realize how late I was out Saturday night. Being a disciple is not about what we offer God, but what we're willing to give up for him. 
I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, for those of you who know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in uh, Nazi Germany in World War II. He was part of the plot to assassinate Hitler. did not succeed. He was caught and uh, eventually killed. But in that time, he wrote a lot of great stuff. I, wrote, I read The Cost of Discipleship when I was in uh, high school. Uh, I read the first two chapters, and I put it down. It freaked me out. This, uh, this guy was hardcore. Like, like, like he's, he talks in a way it's like I, I can't even imagine it. Of course, I picked it back up and read it, and I've read it, reread it multiple times throughout my life. But this is how Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about discipleship. He says, the, oh, sorry, I had it up there. Got excited, a little button happy. He says this. To deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. To see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is, he leads the way, keep close to him. That's discipleship. Jesus leads the way and I just want to stay with him. I want to stay close to him. The road is hard, the decisions are difficult. All these things are difficult. I want to stay close to Jesus. I want to walk by his side. We are too busy for God and for the life he wants for us. We are, you know, and in and, 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 and the most well-meaning way, in the most well-meaning way. We have so scheduled our lives that God has no place. A couple of years ago, a guy comes up to me. He's a gentleman. He works. And he says, listen, you don't understand. I love God. But I have to get up at 4.30 in the morning, be at work at 5 o'clock, or, and then I work all day, and then I come home, and I exhaust, and I go to bed. And I said, he goes, I, just, I, I don't know where to have, find time for God. I said, you know what? You're right. You should quit your job. That's why people don't come to me for advice. And he's like, he's like what? I said, yeah, you should quit your job. It's taking you away from God. You should just quit your job. He's like, I can't quit my job? I'm like, how am I going to make pay the bills? I'm like, I don't know. But is God more important? So he laughed, and I didn't, I didn't see him again, um, <laughs> rightfully so. Um, I got an email uh, two and a half months later from him. And he goes, and, and he said to me in the first line of the email, hey, pastor, I just want to let you know I quit my job. I'm like, mm, hope that worked out well. Uh, I don't have any money if that's what you're asking for. I'm a pastor. Uh, he goes, I quit my job. And I said, oh, and so I read the rest of the email. He said, I quit my job, and of course I had to go on EI. But in the time that I went on for EI, I was looking for other jobs, but I was praying. Cracked my Bible open more. I was praying more. I was uh, going out for walks, just praying, praying, praying. And my number one prayer was, Lord, help me to find a job that doesn't take, doesn't take me away from you. And then he says, of course, that he found a job, right? He didn't have like this big highfalutin job. He just had a job, just a job to pay the bills, which most people do. It's fine, right? So he had this job, and he, he got a job. And he said, this job, I didn't have to start working until uh, 9 a.m. Worked for the day, came home. But you know what's even better, Pastor is I'm beginning to share my faith with the people I work with. I'm beginning to let my light shine. And I thought to myself, isn't that kind of what we, what, we, what we need to live our lives? Right? Like, we're taught so much to pursue the bigger, better, more of this world. And we're so busy with that. We're so inundated by that. But God has no place. But what if we step out in faith and we say, God, you know what? I'm going to give this up so I have more of you. What happens then? You know what happens then? Is that God gets a hold of us and suddenly the cost seems more of a reward. Do you know why people who go through hard times, who are Christ followers, who, are, who, are, who take time to pray and read their Bibles and, 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 and just pursue after God, do you know why they react differently in times of testing and trials? Because their hope is in God. Their hope is in God. Their faith is in the Lord. Not faith for their outcome to go the way they think it is. Not faith that they're going to have lots of money and, and health and all that. No, 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 no. Their faith is 
that God is going to be with them and walk with them. What, what more of God has for you? Declutter your life. Usually I would wrap up with a scripture from Paul to kind of give some practical application. Before I get there, I want to introduce you to a guy named Bob Goff. Some of you know who Bob Goff is. Bob Goff, I heard Bob Goff speak at a uh, conference a few years ago. Let me explain to you how Bob Goff is. Take the late Robin Williams, take the Tasmanian devil, and a crazy uncle that you have, combine them together, and that's how Bob Goff preaches. Bob Goff preaches in such a way that you have no idea what he's talking about in the middle of it, but you love Jesus more at the end. And it's like, I don't even know how this works, right? I, I, I'm not sure how this, how this whole thing comes together. Bob Goff wrote a book called Love Does. It's, it's a great book. I recommend you read it. In that book, by the way, his cell phone number is in it. And he, he asks people to call him. I'm not kidding you. You call that number and Bob Goff, if he's not busy with on the line, will pick up the phone and go, Bob Goff. There are stories of people who have called Bob and Bob's like talking for an hour on the phone. This guy is, this guy is all together on another level, Right. Bob Goff said something which I heard back a few years ago, but have not really understood the wisdom of it until now. He says this, it's Thursday, quit something, eliminate some of the noise in your life and let your symphony have the stage again. He goes on to say, we can't change much if we don't quit much. See, you've been taught you got to do more. Do more. Get Got to occupy yourself more. Get Be in all these clubs. Do more. Be more. And Bob says, no, no, no. I'm going to quit things. He tells a story in this book of uh, he was sitting on a board of a charity. And on Thursday, he calls him up and says, listen, I quit. Like, Bob, no, Bob. You know? Oh, it's Thursday, of course. Yeah, okay, Bob, you quit. There you go. But he literally, every Thursday, he quits something. I, like, I, I can't even imagine that, right? Like, every Thursday, he quits something. But the reason he quits something, he says this. How can I declutter my life for God, for people? To have that space. And for some of you who are organized or you're so busy, this terrifies slash horrifies you. Right? But if you think about the simplicity, look, it says this. The idea is twofold. Get rid of anything that doesn't need to be in your life and to realize you don't have to be stuck in a rut. Like I was going to do this sermon talking about how much you waste your time on social media, entertainment, things like that. You know that, right? The average person, two and a half hours, social media, entertainment on a, in a day. Two and a half hours. Those same people tell me they have no time for anything. But, you know, your quotes on Facebook are so great. And the, the, the cat videos, thank you so much. But let's be honest, that doesn't have to be in your life. Right? Bob Goff says, in the world that we live in, the North American culture that we live in, and this is particularly a North American uh, phenomenon, we're too, we're, we're too busy. Quit something. Quit what you don't need. Quit something even you do need. Just quit something so that God can get a hold, a hold of you. Now, here's the scripture, not from Paul, it's from James, the brother of Jesus. James chapter 4, verses 4 to 5 says this. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Two things. Look how James is talking about you. He calls you an adulterer. Now, you know what an adulterer is, right? Someone who's married, who has a relationship outside of that. Hi, Mashley Addison called, right? So that's what an adulterer is, right? Too soon? Okay, we'll get to that. Anyways, but James is not talking about adultery in a relational marital covenant. He's talking about a spiritual covenant, and he's using that word to apply to you. He's saying to you that you are spiritual adulterers. 
That you are placing God, you, are, you think you can have Jesus and. Jesus and the world, Jesus and this relationship, Jesus and this habit, Jesus and this. And James is like, no, no, no. Because on the other side of it, he says, jealousy. That God is jealous for your time. He is jealous for his spirit that he has given you to rise up within you and transform and change you. That's what he's jealous for. Not just the air conditioning, not God, but that would be kind of cool if it was, right? You adulterous people, you people who, who, who exchange God's glory for the glory of something else. You people who think that God is okay with how busy you are. You people who think that God wants you to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a job or a house or a car or a lazy piece of technology. You adulterous people. You have to hate all of that in order to grasp a hold of God. And again, we use the word hate, lesser priority to what God wants. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think, Scripture says without reason, that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Let's pray. If you could bow your heads and you can close your eyes. I do this to give you a moment to think. If you're visiting, I'm not going to make you do anything. But I do want you to think. Because I do know in these moments, as I've spoken, I know that God is speaking to you. But it is too easy for you to walk away, shrug it off, and say, eh, it wasn't for me. But I believe the Holy Spirit is here, and he's speaking to some of you. Some of you are over-the-top busy. You are so busy that you've bumped God out of your schedule. You have, and you know it. You can't remember the last time you read the Bible or had a time of prayer, and prayer nights over a meal. Some of you are living life, and it's not really life. It's this frantic scramble to try to uh, get bigger, better, more, whatever. And God is here, and he's trying to say something very profound to you. Carve out in your life, viciously if you need to, space for God. If you do not, something else will occupy it, and you will commit spiritual adultery. Jesus did not give us any wiggle room. He did not say to us, it's okay if you have other things too. No, he says, you got to hate those things. They have to be a lesser priority than God. Because, if I can point out, the only thing that you will take beyond this life is your relationship with God. That's it. And all the things that you think are important, you're struggling for, wanting, that's all, those things all fall away. And my prayer for you is that even right now, the Holy Spirit's telling you what to quit. Quit something. Quit many things if you need to. But quit something so God can create space in your life for his presence, for what he wants for you. All the promises you read in the Bible of what he wants for you, those aren't empty promises. But those promises need space to grow, to be planted, to thrive. The things you pursue in your life, sports, school, relationships, they're all fine. But you've got to hate them less than God. Because if you don't, they will occupy and they will supersede him and you will commit spiritual adultery. Holy Spirit, we ask you right now in Jesus' name that you would just speak to the hearts and minds here. God, as we look at our lives, we look at our day, I pray, Lord, that we would realize something very important, very key that we have taken you out of our lives. 
And not because of the sin that we have and not because of anything else, but because of our schedules. We have overpacked our lives with so many things, Lord. Your voice is drowned out. Your spirit is drowned out by all that we do or try to accomplish. And you say to us, as you have said to us in the very beginning, that your way is the true way. That this abundant life that you promised to us is not just this abstract promise, but it's a real truth. But in order to experience it, we have to create space for you. I pray, Holy Spirit, even now, you would speak to us. You'd show us. And God, maybe not too gently sometimes, that we need to make space for you. God, I thank you that you are gracious. I thank you that you are forgiving when we do fall, when we do fumble, when we do fail. That you pick us up. You hug us. It's like the prodigal son was embraced by the father. That we come back and you embrace us and you love us. And you call us sons and daughters once again. Lord, I pray that you would continue to move us and grow us in your way. In Jesus' name, amen.